We've been in our Kings of Christmas series. We just kicked it off last week. Last week we looked at the wise men. This morning we're looking at another king. Uh, it's actually a wicked king. I don't know how many of you, uh, when you think of like a wicked king, like an evil king, I don't know what comes to mind. Some of us might have some cartoonish figures in mind, like Scar from The Lion King or Jafar from Aladdin. Uh, Earlier this week, I was asking for some feedback, and I asked one of our pastors who he thought of. Uh, I said, hey, when I say, like, wicked king, what do you think of? And he said, Lord Farquaad. <laughs> That's our next generation, Pastor Kyle. Thank you, Pastor Kyle, for, for that. Uh, but some of us have a little bit more sinister people in mind. You know, if we think about the Star Wars, as Emperor Palpatine, Darth Vader, Lord of the Rings, the Dark Lord, Sauron. But the interesting thing about all of these characters that some of us know from the silver screen is that if we think about kind of the historical figures, a lot of these character traits that we see, uh, again, in movies or we read about in books, those characters all have similar traits to real wicked kings, like actual evil people who have existed. And in the Old Testament, we see many wicked kings, actually those who led in Judah and those who led in Israel. Uh, but even in, in more modern, recent eras, right, we think, we think of evil leaders who, who lead their people with harsh tyranny. Uh, you think of Mao, Stalin, Hitler, Mussolini, Pol Pot. I mean, the list goes on and on, and history is filled with records of people who have committed heinous and evil atrocities with their power. Um, Lord Acton actually was the one who coined the phrase, about power, he actually said that power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely, like no questions about it. And when we come into our text today, we're actually going to see a king who kind of dwarfs a lot of them and fills in a lot of the characteristics that we see throughout history in these recordings of evil kings and wicked kings. And this is actually King Herod. So we're going to be looking at the wicked king this morning. If you have a Bible or an app on a digital device, I'm going to invite you to find Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be looking at uh, verses 1 through 18 this morning. And last week we looked at really kind of the same set of verses. And what we're going to do is this entire series is going to be in Matthew 2. And last week we kind of highlighted the wise men or the wise kings. This week we're going to highlight the wicked king. And we're going to use the same exact passage. We're going to go through it and we're going to see the different perspectives and unpack it accordingly. And today we come in contact and we see from King Herod. We read about him last week. We're going to read about him again. But just so I know, we kind of know where we're at in the storyline. Uh, last week we talked about the three wise kings. These are the three magi, the astrologers, sorcerers, magicians that had come from the east because they saw this new star. And that star we talked about was them being curious about creation. It was their role and job to kind of read the heavens and then to, to give decrees to the king so he could rule well. And so they saw this new star and it was their curiosity about creation or their wonder about the world that led them to truly seek out the truth about what the star was. We talked about how there's most likely a tradition from Persia that Daniel, Daniel in the lion's den, that he would have left scrolls for them and they would have searched those scriptures and they would have actually found that those scriptures led them to find this king of the Jews who had been born. And so, so we pick up that storyline here. And while we talked about them last week, the encouragement of the challenge for us was to actually look at creation, 
to ask great questions about creation and to have our curiosity about creation lead us to the king of creation, whose name is Jesus, that we would actually bow down and worship him. And so this morning, again, we pick up and we're going to be focusing on the wicked king rather than the wise kings in King Herod. So if you found your place in Matthew chapter 2, I'm going to invite you to stand alongside of me this morning as I read God's word for us. If you're new to grace, we stand out of reverence and respect for the word of God. We believe that all of the Bible, all 66 books are God-breathed and they're given to us for our full life of faith and living. So we're standing, we're reading book of Matthew, chapter two, verse one. Here's what Matthew writes to us. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. In assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child Mary, his mother. They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod When he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are No more. This is God's word. Let's pray before we jump into this passage. You may be seated. Some of you are thinking if I was going to actually say you can take a seat. You're like, I'm just going to have you standing there about five minutes. It's like standing purgatory. Before we unpack this passage, let's go ahead and pray and ask God to bless our time in the word together. Father, we come before you. We're so grateful, Lord, that you've given us your word. You've preserved it for us, that we would have guidance in this life that we would have wisdom unto salvation. Father, you and I both know that I sin and fall short often, and yet thank you for giving your son, Jesus. I thank you that you're my righteousness and goodness, that you've given me mercy and grace, and that I stand here in your righteousness to proclaim you as the true king this morning. So, Spirit of God, I pray that you would fill me, 
that you would empower me in order to speak clearly your truth this morning. Spirit, I pray that you would convict the hearts of those who need conviction. Lord, wake those of us up who are asleep and in a daze. Lord, I pray that you would truly transform all of us into the likeness of the Son. Lord, provide comfort for those who need it this morning as well. Lord, we pray that you would utilize our body in order to expand your kingdom. Lord, use, use our tiny church in the middle of this mid-regional suburb to do something wonderful that you might be glorified. Exalt yourself here among us this morning. In Christ's name, we all said. The big idea this morning from this passage, when we think about the wicked king, is that we would reject the wicked king and worship the one true king. So, so this morning, as you have your mind, as we go through the text, have it in your mind that we're talking about rejection of the, of the, of the w- wicked king that we're going to see. And last week, we were looking internally and we saw that we should emulate the wise kings, those who sought after Jesus, who had questions about the world to seek him out. But then this week, we're going to encounter somebody really wicked and the call would be that we would reject this wicked king and worship the one true king. So let's think about some of the realities that are present about wicked kings. Matthew presents us with some interactions between King Herod and these wise men. King Herod and those people of Bethlehem, and we actually see five different elements about a wicked king that we're called to reject. And here's the first one. We see it in verse three. It's this, that wicked kings are paranoid. Wicked kings are paranoid. They're insecure. And that's what we see here in verse three. Look at, look at verse three with me. The wise men come, and when, when Herod heard that, that there was a king that had been born, it says, when Herod heard, Herod the king heard this, it says he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now, for some of us who don't maybe have background in the storyline of scripture, or maybe some of us who understand the scripture, but we don't really know a lot about King Herod himself, the question would be, why was he so troubled? The word troubled here really is distress, concern, and it, it gets at this kind of feeling of paranoia. Why would he be paranoid? Why would he be troubled? I mean, if this truly was the king of the Jews who had been born, you would think that the person who was the king of the Jews would be excited about that, but he wasn't. He wasn't at all. So I want to I just show, let's talk about King Herod for a second. So here's a picture of King Herod, speaking of Jafar, right? It's kind of creepy. I was like, wow, I got to show that. That's wild. So this is King Herod. And we're going to do a little history lesson here, all right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. So we're going to think about why King Herod would be troubled. Okay, so King Herod was a Jew, but he was only a half-Jew. You see, his father had been forced into conversion because his father was actually a leader in what was known as the Hasmonean Empire. So if we think about Israel, all right, we think about ancient Israel around the time of Jesus' birth, so 0 BC, all right, 0 BC. At that time, the Hasmonean Empire was kind of like a client state to the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire had come in. They had removed a lot of the, the, the headship of the Hasmonean Empire, and they were looking for someone to put in as kind of a client king. That was this guy, King Herod. King Herod was awesome for many people who were Jewish and also horrible for many people who were Jewish. He's a very polarizing historical figure, and yet we're going to see a lot of wickedness take place, but I want us to understand why he would be so troubled. Okay, so Herod grew up. He was torn in his allegiances between the Jews and wanting to be their king. He was considered the governor of Judea, but he made really good friends with 
a Roman governor whose name was Mark Antony. He became really close friends with Mark Antony, and Mark Antony convinced the Roman Senate to install Herod, not just as the governor of Judea, but as the king of the Jews. So think about this for a second. He's torn between his allegiances to the Jews and he's also torn between his allegiances to the Roman Empire. And he wants to serve both and he wants to have the best of both, but he ends up doing a lot of really, really bad things in order to get there. So he took power and became the king of the Jews in 40 BC, right? So so 40 years before the birth of Christ. In 40 BC, there were still Hasmonean leaders that could have usurped his power and taken legitimate claims to his throne. So you know what he did? He killed them because that's what you did back in these ancient times. He killed them all. Not only did he kill those who were considered enemies to, to the throne or those who could usurp his power, but he went on a killing spree for three years from 40 BC to 37 BC. The dude just started murking everybody. For those of you who don't know what murking is, that means to kill. All right. So he's killing everybody. He's just wiping them out. And it wasn't only those who were threat, a threat outside of his household. It was actually his own flesh and blood. His second wife was a Hasmonean princess. He marries her. He has two sons. At some point, he recognized that both of those sons had legitimate claims to his own throne and could have usurped him, could have been insubordinate, could have stolen the throne from him. So what did he do? He killed, he killed both of his sons. Their mom was slightly upset. Go figure. So you know what he did? He killed her. Her two brothers were also very upset. So you know what he did? He killed them. Herod was so evil, we see this in one of the brother-in-laws that he killed. He was actually in trouble with the highest religious authority in Israel at the time, which was known as the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, where his his kingdom was, all right? He was in deep trouble with them for some of the things he'd been doing. He was on trial before the Sanhedrin, and they had the religious power to actually execute judgment over him. One of his brother-in-laws stood up for him in front of the Sanhedrin. And not but a year later, he killed that brother-in-law. This was not a nice guy. So why is he polarizing them? He's polarizing because it wasn't only the, the wicked things and the dark things that he did in order to get power, but he's polarizing because he brought a lot of good to the average citizen in Jerusalem and in Judea and in all of Israel. You see, again, he was torn between his allegiances to be a Jew and be a Roman. He loved Greco-Roman culture, and he was very, very skilled as an architect. And he commanded and called for many buildings to be built, civic buildings that are really, the rubble is still in Israel today. In fact, uh, if you've ever been to Israel, Pastor Scott and I, we went at different times to Israel, but we were laughing about this because it's basically like a King Herod tour. Like, okay, this was King Herod's summer home, and then here's his winter home, and then here's his gymnasium, and then here's the aqueducts he built. It's his Caesarea Philippi and his temple here. He literally built so many things. But his, his kind of the prize jewel of all of his pursuits as an architect and as a builder, expanding all the Jewish names through Roman architecture, was the rebuilding of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem itself. There was no brighter, bigger, more beautiful, more glorious temple than when King Herod, even better than King Solomon's, was King Herod's temple. He built and he expanded it. In fact, some of his temple is still existing today. The western wall of the temple that he built is the western wailing wall today in Israel, where you see Jews praying today. That's part of his command, his decree to build. Okay, so he was a prolific builder. He not only did that, he lowered taxes 
He brought incredible, uh, he, brought, incre- he brought, uh, brought a lot of people who were poor citizens out of poverty. He brought a lot of agricultural technology that made farming a lot easier in this region. So this is why he's a very polarizing figure. But it doesn't excuse the wickedness that he committed in order to take claim over the throne. And here's what we just need to take, take for, for, like, think about this for a second. Herod had been ruling from 40 to 37 and wiped out all of, all of those who could have overtaken his throne. Then from 37 to the birth of Jesus, this guy ruled and reigned and was considered what? The king of the Jews. The king of the Jews. So you could imagine that he would be slightly perturbed. That Gentiles came from a very distant land, showed up and said, hey, there's a new star in the sky, a bright shining star, a rising star. And that star tells us that the real king of the Jews was born. If I had killed and wiped out all of my enemies, including people in my own household, only to have some foreigner come and tell me that the king of Jews was going to take my throne? Are you getting why he would be slightly troubled? Okay, so this is what we have to understand about Herod as a figure and as a character in order to understand this this really simple line, he was troubled, okay? But then it says, and all Jerusalem was troubled with him. They were not troubled in the same way. They were troubled because they knew the power and the brutality that he could take. He's troubled. They're troubled. Everyone is troubled. His paranoia was so renowned that Caesar Augustus himself has a recorded statement saying that it's better to be Herod's pig than it is to be Herod's son. That's how evil and wicked King Herod was. What do we do with this information? The first thing I want to do is I want to just provide a comparison for us. And the second thing I want to do is to talk about paranoia itself and how it manifests in wicked rulers today. Okay, so... What do we do with this information? Let's think about how last week we wanted to emulate the wise men, and this week we want to reject the wicked king, King Herod. We want to emulate those wise kings. So let's look at this comparison, okay? So the wise kings came, those wise men came, and when they saw the star, what did they do? They personally sought out the scriptures themselves. They looked for truth themselves. They didn't take anybody else's word for it. When Herod heard about this, he sought others who sought out the truth about scriptures. There was a distance between him and his study of the scriptures, a personal devotion, we'll call it. The wise kings emulate for us a pattern and a desire that we would have to actually seek truth for ourselves. This is one of the things in the New Testament. Jesus commissioned Paul, the apostle, to go to the Gentiles. And he goes to this city called Berea, and he tells them about the gospel. And those good Jews that were there who heard about the Messiah coming, they went back and they studied the word for themselves. They didn't go to somebody else. They didn't take Paul's word for it. They studied the scriptures for themselves. What we want to emulate about the wise men is that we would be those who don't seek others' input, but we would actually seek directly the scripture, seek the truth directly from the scriptures itself. What else do we see? The wise kings rejoiced in the arrival of the king. King Herod was troubled by the arrival of the king. The wise kings sought the arrival of the king, and King Herod snuffed the arrival of the king. Again, we want to pattern ourselves and emulate those who seek wisdom rather than those who are wicked. But we also want to understand paranoia 
in and of itself. Here's what paranoia is. Paranoia is the unjustified suspicion of people and their actions. It's totally unjustified. There's no precedent for you worrying or having fear about what would come behind you. There's no need to look over your shoulder. But, but here's the thing about Herod. Herod was paranoid. And wicked kings are paranoid. But the problem wasn't that Herod was simply paranoid. That's not the problem. The problem was that Herod had every right to be paranoid. He had every right to be insecure. Why? Because he knew, he knew that he wasn't the rightful king of the Jews. He knew that he wasn't the one who had actually pursued and actually been given rightful kingship over the Jews. He knew he wasn't the rightful king. He knew that everything he had to do to become the king of the Jews wasn't God-given. It was Herod-taken. You see, Herod had the sneaking suspicion that one day someone would come to overthrow his throne, so he wasn't paranoid for no reason. In fact, he was looking over his shoulder because he should have been looking over his shoulder. He should have been insecure because he had every reason to be insecure because he wasn't the king. He knew it. We know it. It's because Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king. Herod thought he could ride out his final years and his final days of kingship and peace. He only had four more years before he died when this event took place when the Christ child was born. And with the time he finds out, it was probably only about two years before he dies. And he had anticipated and hoped that he would have rode off into the sunset, remembered for all of his historical greatness as Herod the Great, Herod the Builder. You see, Herod had thought I had brought peace into my life because he had mastered all his subjects and he had vanquished all his foes. He had built up an entire region in servitude to Rome, but his kingdom was built on sand and he just found out that the rock of ages had been born. This is a big problem for Herod. He had every right to be paranoid. He had every right to have every suspicion. But here's the problem that you and I have. Here's the problem we have today. Many of us, sitting in this room, have probably thought about someone in our lives who reminds us of this wicked King Herod. Someone who is just so insecure, so paranoid as a leader, as a boss, as a public figure, a politician. But here's the problem. You didn't go far enough because the issue is that there isn't just a wicked King outside of us. There's actually a wicked King within us. While we would stand in condemnation over others for seeming for their seeming paranoia and sneer at their insecurity, how many of us would even stomach the thought that we ourselves are like Herod? We are the proud, the paranoid, who want total autonomy and control and freedom over our very lives. And even as Nathan would say to King David in his adulterous affair, so too this morning I would tell you, you are the man. You are the wicked king who sat on the throne of your own heart desiring total autonomy and control, authority and power, sneering at others who seemingly have paranoia. You are the king 
who sits on the throne of your own heart, pretending if only for a lifetime that you are the master and commander of your own destiny, but Herod was not and neither are you. The king has come and the king has arrived and even from birth was sought to be killed because of those who should have accepted him with joy, rejected him and were troubled at his coming. You see, here's the issue. If there is a king of the universe, if Jesus is king, that means he's sovereign over your life and over my life. That means he calls the shots. He has control. I don't get to tell him who I get to sleep with. I don't get to tell him when I give and when I don't. I don't get to tell him who I love and who I don't. I don't get to tell him how he made me or how he should have made me. I don't get to tell him when I worship or how I worship. I don't get to tell him what I can listen to or can't listen to. I don't get to tell him who I can and can't spend my time with, where I can and can't go, who I will follow, who I won't follow, what I will watch or what I won't. Why? Because you're not the king. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king. There are far too many Christians who see too much of Herod in others and not enough Herod in themselves. In order to receive the joyful news of the gospel of Jesus, which is good news, you must look in the mirror and realize that you yourself are the one who is the wicked king in the storyline, not the one who receives with joy and worship. The bad news is that we all have fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible tells us that if we claim to be without sin, we live in sin, walk in darkness, and do not know God. So we are justified in thinking that something greater is out there. It's not only that something greater is out there, it's something greater is here because Jesus, who is the greatest, has come. Herod, if only he knew that this wasn't simply the king of the Jews, but he was the king of the kings, the Lord of lords, the king of the universe and the Lord over all who had come to save as a child. If we see within ourselves the same wicked bent for control of our own lives, then here's the call this morning. Reject paranoia by rejecting your own desire to control. You aren't in control. Jesus is in control. Wicked kings are not only paranoid, but wicked kings can also know the truth and not believe. Look at verses 4 and 5. It says, All of Israel was troubled, and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And immediately they told him in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet. And they share the very verse with specificity of where the Christ child was to be born. Think about this for a second. You would think that they would have not only known the right Bible answer, but that they would have immediately left to go and worship Jesus. They did not do that. So you can know the truth and still not believe the truth. See, the chief priests and the scribes show us that you can actually have knowledge of scriptures and yet your hearts be very far from belief. You see, one commentator puts it this way, Israel knew precisely where the king of the Jews would be born. 
but it was the Gentiles who worshipped him first. Their failure was not a failure of not knowing, but of not believing. That was their failure. Some of you have grown up in Christian culture. You've grown up in and around the church, but basically you're fully secularized. You know about Jesus, but you don't know Jesus as your king, which means lordship, which means obedience. Some of you believe you know the scriptures and you may know with specificity the doctrine and have every right Bible answer, Jesus, Jesus, be able to say and know the truth. And you would say, yeah, I know, I know, I know. Yeah, 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 I know, I know, I know. The most dangerous place to be isn't as a non-Christian who's ignorant to the mercies of God in Christ. It's to be a quasi-Christian saying, you know these things are true and never having your life transformed by that truth. Jesus speaks to the Pharisees over and over and over in their self-righteousness. Seven times he says, woe to you. Woe to you. The danger for this area in particular, and especially for young people in this area, is that you would think that somehow the culture you grow up in has any personal bearing on your individual salvation at all. It doesn't. It doesn't matter what you believed growing up in the home you believed. It matters whether or not you believe that. Not whether or not you've just been taught it and it's just dead head knowledge to you or if it's actually penetrated your heart and brought true conviction, deep radical repentance in your life where you do not want to live like those who are in a pagan world. And yet there are so many, so many Christians today who fill pews in churches who don't live, who don't live as if they know the Lord. The prophets in the Old Testament told all of Israel to believe. The apostles said to repent and believe. And this morning, some of you are scribes who are far from salvation because you think your knowledge of God is the same thing as a relationship with God. It pains me as a shepherd and a pastor in this church that your pastors and shepherds have to sit up here week in and week out during announcements, during sermons, and call this body to share the love of God in Christ Jesus. It should be something so boiling over within you and overflowing within you that you cannot restrain yourself but to tell somebody about the love of God in Christ Jesus. And yet over and over we have to say, who are you talking to about Jesus? Invite people to come to church to hear about Jesus over and over and over. For some of you who are non-believers here this morning and listening, that, that you are just trying to figure this whole Christian thing out. If you've been invited by somebody here this morning, it's because they love you and they want you to know the life-saving power of the gospel that only comes through Jesus Christ alone. And if you've invited no one to church and told no one about Jesus... I would wonder if you truly know of his love. We must reject mere knowledge with true faith and repentance. Some say that the furthest journey of faith is 18 inches long. It goes 
from the head to the heart, right here, the furthest distance to travel. Some of you have heard, heard over and over and over, here, 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 here. And your heart is still far from God. This is why God would tell the Israelites in the Old Testament that he hates their worship to just stop worshiping because he hears it in their praise of their lips, but their hearts are so far from him. God cares about your heart. There was a gifted orator, a defender of the faith, who wrote so many books that bolstered people's faith in the Lord because of his logical defenses, his emotional appeals, and his illustrations that gave life to so many arguments that gave assurances to so many believers. Only coming to find out that Ravi Zacharias had misused, mistreated, sexually abused women for his own personal gratification in multiple adulterous affairs for decades on end. You can say you know God and your heart be very, very far from him. Woe to those of us who would presume to walk into a sanctuary to give visible signs of faith and repentance, but our hearts are completely unchanged. That our lips would praise and our mouths would instruct and our very souls be left untransformed and actually troubled at the thought that Jesus has any right to come and tell me how to live. Let me tell you something. Jesus has every right. He is your creator and your God and your king. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? Wicked kings are not only paranoid. Wicked kings can actually know the truth and not actually believe the truth. Wicked kings are also deceitful. Look at verses 7 and 8. After they tell him, with specificity, where the king of the Jews was to be born. It says, Herod summoned the wise men secretly, secretly, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. So, so, so think about this, what he's doing. The wise men appear. They tell him about this king that was born. He's troubled. Jerusalem's troubled. They're like, we don't know what this fool's going to do. He might kill everybody. He sends out the chief priests and the scribes, and then secretly... He has the wise men tell him specifically, when did this star arise? He wanted to know in secret. He wanted to, to, to have really the cover of darkness in the shadows of secrecy bring about his will. This is deceitful as being fake. He's, he's a fake king. Fake people want you to think highly of them while they do the most lowly of tasks behind your back. They will pull together Meetings in order to control the narrative. That's what this king is doing. The chief priests and the scribes run around to hear the answer from the wise men. The wise men, believing that this king would have had the best in mind, tell him the answer. He wanted that information for himself because he had already had another plan that he was hoping to follow through on, and it was to kill this child. Look at verse 13 with me. Verse 13. He says, now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. 
to destroy him. In order to destroy him, Herod wants what the wise men know, this timeline of the child's birth. Jesus was born. The wise men come, and Herod wants to determine exactly the timeline, why, so he could figure out exactly how old this child was that he needed to kill, who had a claim to his throne. Herod knew that this child had a legitimate claim to his throne, and so he couldn't be forthright with the wise man. Wicked kings will use deceit instead of honesty. Instead of laying everything out on the table, they will try and bring and pull strings in order to get their will done. And when you are open and honest about your plans, it clarifies the intentions of your heart. When you don't divulge information and you withhold, you move around in the shadows, this speaks to deceitfulness. And Herod knew that his intentions were bad, so he had to make sure that this meeting was in private. Search for the child, not so I can worship him, but so you could kill him. And here's the call for us, is that we're called to reject deceitfulness and to live in the light. Again, if we claim to know the truth and we walk in darkness, we don't have the truth in us and we don't know God. Truth and time go hand in hand. If something's true, then over the course of time, it will reveal itself to be true. And that's exactly what we see with Herod. It came to fruition. Wicked kings are deceitful and wicked kings take life. In verses 12 through 18, we see Herod concocting this plan. The wise men go and they see this child. They're warned in verse 12 not to return the way that Herod had asked them to. Don't say anything to Herod. Next week, we'll look more internally at verses 13 through 15 and the call to go to Egypt and the protection of God and the providential protection of this prince of peace who had just been born. But in verse 16, we see that paranoia, that wicked intent come full force in the anger of Herod. Look at verse 16. It says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region, who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. See, here's the thing. Herod reacts. Not only do we see Herod's reaction in his furious anger and his calling for the slaughter, what's called the slaughter of the innocents, but this isn't the first time we see this in Scripture. In fact, it's repeated almost exactly the same in the Old Testament. The question is, why? Why would this happen? There is a spirit that is evident in wicked kings who stand opposed to the line of succession because it's a spirit of the Antichrist who opposes the offspring of women. And it comes directly from Genesis 3.15. When God curses the serpent, who in the garden deceived Adam and Eve, he curses the serpent and he says this. So this is, we, we're stepping out of this narrative for a second in order to understand a biblical truth Okay, God curses the serpent and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's the offspring. But here's what we need to know. The serpent, who is the enemy, who is Satan himself, does not know everything God knows. Satan is not omniscient. So what he doesn't know is who this exact offspring will be. We now know that it is the Christ child, Jesus himself, Satan has no idea. So every baby boy that's ever born is a direct assault and a direct threat to his kingdom. 
and what he wants to do. And so in the New Testament, we see this exact spirit repeated. It, that's repeated in Herod actually in Pharaoh himself. We think about the Israelites in the Old Testament. They came out of the land of Egypt, but what precipitated their movement out of Egypt was this kind of activity from a king who was oppressive, tyrannical, and wicked. Here's what we read in Exodus. It says, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. You get it? If it's a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, let her live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded, but let the male children live. So think, about, think about King Herod in our situation, asking the magi to go and to come back and tell him. They didn't. They disobeyed. They went a different direction. The midwives, like the magi, did the same thing. They, they did not obey that evil command. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives, you're going to love this, and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. They lied. <laughs> Right, Just like those who hid Jews righteously when the Nazis were seeking them out. God covers them by his mercy. And we actually see this, that he blesses them. Look, it says, so God dealt well with the midwives. They were obeying God's law before this command of Pharaoh. It says, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh, right? Commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Does it sound similar? Sounds very similar. King Herod, kill all the male infants. Kill them all. Pharaoh is paranoid that the Israelites will overthrow his power. Herod is paranoid that the king of kings will overthrow his power. Pharaoh tries to use others to do his bidding. Herod, also with the Magi, same thing, tries to get others to do his bidding. And eventually both of them call for the extermination of all of the boys, one like the other. That's the spirit of a wicked king. That's all those who stand opposed. And here's the thing. Whenever we see the slaughtering of innocents, it is an attack on the headship that was forfeited by Adam and was promised through Eve to the offspring of Adam that there would one day be a baby boy who delivers the people of God forever. Overthrowing the kings in every kingdom of this world and pointing forward to the lordship of the Lord Jesus himself, who is the king of kings. You see, even today, when we look at the murder of unborn children with the practice of abortion, this falls in line with the spirit of Herod, spirit of Pharaoh that takes life and doesn't give life. Herod and Pharaoh were both more interested in their own success and their own plans. Paranoia and fear gripped their hearts and in making their name great, they desired to actually do the unthinkable, to commit heinous atrocities 
so that they themselves could have an unattainable kingdom that stood forever, which belongs to Jesus Christ himself alone. Do you see then how the spirit of Herod and a spirit of Pharaoh, this wicked spirit, is still alive in our world today? We have to condemn the action and the activity of abortion as evil and wicked. But I also want to speak to those of you in a, in a room this size and in a church our size, guarantee that abortion would hit close to home for some of you. And I just want you to recognize that there is forgiveness and healing in Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ alone is there healing and forgiveness. While we would condemn the truth and while we would want to discontinue any legislation that would lead to this type of activity, all of us who are believers in Jesus can point to the good news of the king who came to deliver us from the wicked king, even if we ourselves were that wicked king. Here's a hard truth for us to wrestle through. Okay? This action of Herod killing all these babies in Bethlehem and in all that region, this is again known as the slaughter of the innocents. But the only innocent person who's ever lived and died, his name was Jesus. And here's the hard truth. You and I were the ones that slaughtered that innocent because of our sin. Galatians 4, 4 through 5 tells us, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, his baby boy, to be born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive adoptions, adoption as sons, daughters of the Most High. So I'll just say this. I don't, I don't understand that kind of mercy or that kind of love. Some of you know my story. My wife and I, Andrea, you know our story. We had a 10-day-old infant son who passed away from a virus. And... I can tell you right now, I, I, wouldn't, I would not trade him for any of you or for all of you. I don't understand how the heart of God and the mercy of God and the grace of God would be so kind and compassionate to, the, to those who killed his son in order that those same people would be forgiven. That is a radical love. That yes, we have broken God's law and we deserve judgment for our wickedness and punishment for our sin, but that God would actually give his only son, this child that we read about, who was born in a manger, in innocence and vulnerability, and that we ourselves, by our sin, hung on the cross, murdered brutally, that that very son would look to you and I and say, I love you and I forgive you. I don't understand that kind of love. But those who are willing to receive it those who are willing to receive it are adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High God. The blessing that we see in this passage is that wicked kings fail. In verse 14 and verse 19, we read about Herod. We read about him still being alive. But in verse 19, we read about Herod's death. It says, when Herod died, an angel of the Lord said to Joseph that he could go back from Egypt. So, so I just want us to think about this for a second. Herod, as an evil king, who sought to kill this child, is the only one who dies in this passage. And the king 
who was sought to be killed, who was the innocent, is the one who not only died, but who is alive and reigns forever as our living hope and the King of kings and the Lord of lords is Jesus. That's who we've come to worship. How ironic for Herod. <laughs> I want to kind of have like a little bit of a maybe meta moment here just to think about some of the impulses that we have. Meta meaning like if we think a little bit larger, a little bit bigger picture, broader picture, the biblical storyline presents evil kings as evil as opposed to good. Herod, like Pharaoh, were simply acting out of their culture and their context. Herod was right to protect his throne. The emperors functioned the same way. There's an atheist author and historian named Tom Holland, and he wrote a book that's called Dominion. And the subtitle of the book is How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. And what he argues in this book is that all of what we love and pursue in our culture, whether you're Christian or not, civil rights, individual rights, liberties, freedom, justice, throwing off tyranny and oppression, all of these are not Roman values. They're not Greco-Roman values. These are Christian values. So for some of us here this morning who would be able to look at King Herod and say, that's evil that he would kill all of these babies. The only reason why you can make that argument is because Christ, this Christ child came to get, give you a real definition of what good is and what evil and wickedness actually look like. When we think about Jesus Christ, he is the one who came, who was pursued to be killed. And when the time came, he gave his life for those who would repent of their sins, see their wickedness, and receive him as the king of kings. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. And Lord, I just pray that, that we would be those who not only know the truth, but believe the truth, who abide in you, Jesus. Father, I thank you that you were willing to give your son and not only willing, but that it delighted you to be able to offer him up so that you would put us back in right relationship through him. Jesus, you are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. You are the one who reigns. And we worship you this morning. And Spirit, I pray that those who are convicted this morning would not delay their obedience. Those who are convicted this morning would turn and repent. Lord, that they would not wait a moment longer before receiving you as Lord. Father, I pray for those who are far off, Lord, that they would hear your cry, your call of, of the gospel to come forward, Lord Jesus, and that they would give their lives to you. That they would see you as the one who is worthy of worship. We pray this all in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen.